0: So tonight we begin the second half of the Gospel of John that we began last summer. We left off in John chapter 12 last fall, probably in October, I think it was. And tonight we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 9 through 36, that's what we'll be covering tonight. John chapter 12, verses 9 to 36. Twelve chapters have been presented so far, covering the public ministry of Jesus. And in the coming weeks, you're going to be looking at chapters 13 to 17, that are devoted to Chapters 13 to 17 cover one week. Tonight is the last portion of the public ministry of our Lord. So in the coming weeks, you're going to be looking at one week for a bunch of uh, chapters. And they deal with Jesus' personal ministry to his disciples. Then you're going to look at chapters 18 to 21 which cover our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection. So this last chapter that deals with our Lord's public ministry, and it begins with the account of of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 1 of chapter 12 tells us that. Verse 2 tells us that they made a supper... And Lazarus is reclining at the table in fellowship with the Lord who had raised him from the dead. And that's the setting as we move into chapter, uh, to verse 9 here of chapter 12. Let's look at verses 9 to 11 and dive in here. Verse 9 says, "And a great, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of of him, many of the Jews went away and believed Jesus. So there were many coming from all over the country for the Passover feast. Uh, At the end of chapter 11, there, verse 55, that tells us, it says, on the Passover, the Jews was near and many came from all from the country up to Jerusalem. Um, So there were many coming from all over the country for the Passover feast. And there were many who sought Jesus. They sought out Jesus and they also sought out Lazarus because Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And as a result of Lazarus restored life, it caused many to go see him and many gave their lives to the Lord, as it says there in verse 11. It's incredible. Lazarus is an example of the witness in what Jesus has done in our lives. Because you need Jesus to give you new life. To restore your life. And then you're to be be a witness for him. And that's kind of a model there. And I realize that our transformation is not as dramatic as a physical resurrection from the dead as we see here in Lazarus. But people should see a definite change in our life. After we have been born again. Also, we must spend time in fellowship with our Lord, learning from Him. Then we are to pray that God will use us to witness to the loss. Because our Savior came to seek and to save those who were lost. Wouldn't it be awesome, I thought, if we could all put our names there in verse 11. And say... On account of Henry, many were going away and believing in Jesus. And we are called to be a witness of the new life that we have in Christ, our Savior. The flip side here is that for Lazarus, is that uh, verse 10 tells us that the chief priests plotted to put him to death. They actually wanted to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. And then later on, down the line, it was Stephen and then James, and then Peter. And there are many others who have put their life in danger for identifying with Jesus even to this day. Even today there are people with evil intent that have a plan to cover up the evidence of the truth of Jesus. Think about it. Lazarus had done absolutely nothing to deserve punishment. But the chief priest wanted to get rid of him. Why? Because they wanted to get rid of the evidence. See, many of the chief priests were Sadducees. And they believed, they did not believe in the resurrection. So Lazarus had become uh, important as evidence that Jesus was right in his teachings. And that the rulers of the people were wrong. So they were trying to destroy the evidence by wanting to kill Lazarus. G. Campbell Morgan, he commented on this point really nice. He said, Hostility to God, as manifested in Christ, has been the characteristic of the world ever since the days of Jesus and Lazarus. And it has ever been trying to get rid of him. How many have they put to death in the endeavor? Pilate probably thought he had done the business presently when he put Jesus on the cross. When he handed him over, it was uh, with a sort of sense of relief that it was done. Done with? Within a couple of generations, the power he represented had to repeat the martyrdom of Jesus 10,000 times in Rome itself. So the evidence for the truth of Jesus' teaching and of Jesus power to change life it cannot it cannot be destroyed it's unavoidable and then think about this here we are some 2000 plus years later and we are evidence of Jesus teaching and his power to transform lives In verses 12 to 19, we have the event known as the triumphal entry of, of Christ into Jerusalem. It's the Palm Sunday story. It's a story that is written in all four Gospels. And up until this point, Jesus had kept himself from being publicly presented to, the, to his nation as their Messiah. Until this time, Jesus would tell those who he had healed or performed a miracle not to tell anybody about it. When he healed the leper in Mark chapter 1, Jesus commanded him not to tell anyone. In Mark 7, when Jesus healed a deaf-mute person, he commanded them that they should tell no one. Even when he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave strict orders that no one should know about it. The only exception was when Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the Messiah. But that was a one-on-one thing there. But now Jesus publicly presents himself to his nation as their Messiah. Look at verses 12 and 13. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the king of israel it was the time of the passover feast there was large crowds that had gathered it's estimated that there were probably a million people in the city for the passover and many would have been Galileans who were familiar with Jesus' ministry. And many others probably heard of, of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And they were looking to see Jesus. And uh, Jesus was already popular at this point. But now he had produced a miracle that no one had ever done. There's this guy named Lazarus who a lot of people knew walking around who had been dead four days. And many heard about the miracle and they wanted to see him. So here is the Passover feast happening. And people are preparing lambs to sacrifice at the feast. And the amazing thing is that our Lord decides that this is the day that he would present himself to, his, to the nation as the Lamb of God. The Savior of, who takes away the sins of the world. It's incredible. This is the day that was prophesied in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. The day that was calculated by Sir Robert Anderson, who you've heard Pastor Xavier mention with that incredible calculation in his book, The Coming Prince. Those detailed calculations based on Daniel's prophecies um, brought the prophecy to April 6, 32 AD. This exact day. And Jesus is coming in and the triumphal entry. Incredible. (laughs) just insane if you think about that um i found out that sir robert anderson was knighted for that that book that's why he's sir robert anderson he's called sir robert anderson but this is that day verse 13 tells us when the crowd heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem people took palm branches and went out to meet jesus now date palm trees Grew around the area of Jerusalem and still grow there. When I was fortunate to go to Israel. I bought me a jar of date palm honey. And that stuff is awesome. You put it on chicken and you put it on the grill and it's incredible. Um, But by the time of Jesus. Palm branches had become a national Jewish symbol. The palm branches were a symbol of victory over their enemies. So the crowd was hopeful that Jesus was the the Messianic liberator who would free them from Rome's uh, dominion or domination. Notice the word Hosanna here in verse 13. It means save, please. It was a prayer for help. They were quoting Psalm 118, 118, the Messianic Psalm. Hosanna, save now. Also, the people shouted out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are crying out for deliverance. Save us now. They're quoting uh, Psalm 118.26. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here in John's account, they add something different. They add the king of Israel. The thing is, they are not saying, save us. Jesus, come into our heart. Be my Lord, be my savior. They're not saying that. But save us from the political threats of Rome. That's what they're crying for. And Jesus is their Messiah. He is their king and he will rule and reign in Israel. And save Israel from their enemies. But this did not happen at his first coming. On his second coming, Jesus will accomplish that. At this point, Jesus had to deal with with going to the cross and to die for their sins. But on his second coming, he will rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Over the earth and in a new heaven and a new earth. But they wanted this deliverance now. Save now. Look at verses fourteen and fifteen. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, "Fear not, daughter of Zion; behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt." Jesus was fulfilling. A, 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 there's another prophecy in Zechariah nine nine. Again, it it just it blows my mind. That who could write this stuff? hundreds of years before and it come true no one else did that or can do that who claims to be god but it just it just blows my mind when i read these prophecies and and you see that they came through, true and notice he did not ride into jerusalem on a powerful war horse that's not what he's coming in he's not coming in to lead a charge against rome But he's coming in on a donkey to offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. A donkey was not considered a kingly animal in those days. Look at verse 16. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. This saying of the disciples, it just encouraged me. (laughs) Because we don't always understand things at first. Just like it says, they didn't understand these things at first. And the disciples are probably saying, I don't get it. And they didn't get it until Jesus was glorified. After the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he was taken back into heaven. Then they remembered, then it all came back to them. Verse 17 says, Therefore, The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So there's two groups are are referred to in these two verses. One were those who were with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb. It says they bore witness. The, The bore witness, it means that they were witnessing Or were testifying to the signs they saw. In other words, they were were magnifying the witness that they saw. That was the first group. There were a couple of... of, uh, Made me think of... There was a couple of Mormons that were at the marriage ministry uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess now. After we had finished. And they were at the bottom of the the ramp. And they were trying to steal our sheep. And... uh, our people just moved in on them. You know, instantly it was awesome. You know, it's like, yeah. You know, and our people, were, they were bearing witness. They bore witness to Jesus. And it just made me think of that. And it was, it was pretty awesome. Um, they shared with them and bore witness to the truth. Second, uh, verse 13 speaks of those who came from Jerusalem. They were excited by the reports of the miracle and they wanted to meet him. So verse 19 says, the Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is pretty interesting. The Pharisees are pretty much freaking out here. They're concerned. Because they know that there is a potential for things to get out of hand. See, Jesus could have started a revolt right then and there. And they're saying, this is getting us nowhere. And and it's it's really interesting what's happening in Jesus' ministry at this point. Because you have the whole political aspect of of Messiah as king that was dominating Jewish thinking at this time, at this point. As the nation was dealing with Roman rule and, and wanted someone to deliver them politically, so there's this kind of political thought going on in, in, in a lot of the minds of people. But our Lord was fulfilling the scriptures by his entry into Jerusalem at this point. And this event even triggers, it was the trigger that led to his, to, to his death on the cross. The crowds were hoping for this political king who could lead a, a military victory over Rome and provide peace and, and provide prosperity for the nation. And they were not really interested in a spiritual Messiah with a spiritual kingdom who could provide forgiveness for their sins and who could be their Lord for every part of their personal lives. In fact, and you're going to see this as you guys continue in the Gospel of John, in fact, in about a week's time, these shouts of Hosanna are going to be turn to shouts of crucify him. And you'll see that. And many in the crowds were following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And when you follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, that type of foundation will fall apart. So how does this apply to us? We need to make sure that we are following Jesus because of who he is, not because of what we think he can provide for us. The crowds, for the most part, consisted of those who, who gave praise to Jesus because they were thinking of the, of the temporary benefits that he might provide for them. Just as there's many who think that Jesus, uh, they come to Jesus because they think that he'll give them something now. For instance, you know, there are many who come to Jesus because they think they're going to get financial prosperity. Some think that if I come to Jesus, my health will get better. Or if I come to Jesus, he's going to keep me from having to go to jail. So I'm going to go to church, you know, and, you know, we get people who, you know, come in all the time and they want us to sign off that they came to church so that they won't have to go to jail. But do they really want to walk with the Lord? Is that their, you know, do they want to know Jesus because of who he is? There are many who come into the church. And again, the Lord uses these things. It's not like he doesn't. But sometimes people come with the wrong intention. Sometimes people come uh, because uh, to Jesus because they think that he's going to give them back their spouse because they blew it. And I've seen that happen. And there's all kinds of other temporal benefits that they think they can get. There are many who follow the health and wealth heresy. And it just leads many into disappointment and it destroys their faith when things don't turn out as the false teacher said it would. Or they tell them, well, your faith's not strong enough. That's why you're not being healed. I remember when the the promise keepers movement was in its its, uh, height that... I knew guys who would go to these big events down at the Coliseum and stuff and it's emotional and you know they're getting so pumped and high and it's just so awesome and then after during the week they would crash and they would come down hard and I remember talking to some guys and you know it's just it was it, it, I felt for them because you can't keep that at that level And then what happens, and it's sad and it's tragic, is that many times people don't continue to follow Jesus when these types of things don't pan out the way they thought it would. So the point is that we are to follow Jesus because of who he is, the Messiah, the King of our salvation. If our faith rests on the person of Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture, if we have a real intimacy with him, See, anybody can come to church, you guys, but we need to have that, that relationship that he needs to speak to us. We need to be spending that time with him in his word. And if we have that real intimacy with him and we love him for who he is, then we're going to be stronger. We're not going to be shaken when things get thrown our way because we're serving him, we're loving him, we're following him for who he is. The point is our faith does not rest on the circumstances, but on Jesus. And who he is and what he has promised to those who are his. The eternity that he has for us. Our true reward in this life. To, it's not in this life, but it's in the life to come with our Lord. Look at verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks. Greeks. Among those who came up to worship at the feast. It's interesting that this passage mentions Greeks at a Jewish feast. And many believe that these Greeks, they, these were Greeks who had been uh, proselytes to Judaism. And they were ever able to go into the, the court of the Gentiles outside of in the temple there. And um, they embraced the Jewish religion. And look at verse 21. It says, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Philip and Andrew told Jesus. It's also also interesting that John tells us about their request to see Jesus. And then they're taken off the scene. And we don't really know if their request was granted or what was the outcome. But again, this is a, a pivotal moment as Jesus is going to the cross. There's an important significance, I believe, in this. Uh, as the, these Greeks their desire to see Jesus. I believe that it marked a turning point where the Jewish people have rejected, rejected Jesus as their Savior. And now the gospel was going to go out to the Gentiles. As well as the Jews. The Greeks represent how salvation would be proclaimed to the whole world. The gospel went to the Jews first, but now that they have, for the most part, rejected it, um, it's going to go, as you know, you'll see, it's going to go out to the whole world. And if you want, go to Romans 9, uh, chapter 9 through 11, and Paul develops that whole um, uh, subject. And it's fascinating. And here in the Gospel of John, you see this happening. It's kind of a subtle way, but we see the contrast of the Pharisees with the Greeks since verse 19 here. And the Pharisees, if you think about it, they were the religious leaders in Israel. They should have accepted Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. But instead, they rejected him and were seeking to kill him. But in contrast, the Greeks were seeking to see him. In verse 19, the Pharisees declared, look, the world has gone after him. And here in verse 21, the Greeks tell Philip, we want to see Jesus. And you know what? That should be the hard cry of all of us. Especially those of us who are born again. I want to see Jesus. And even though we now see in a mirror dimly, as 1 Corinthians 13:12 declares... Our ambition to is to be, we should have the ambition to see more and more of Jesus and be more and more like him. As we grow in our walk with him. As we allow him to change us into his image. As Paul says in Second Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image from glory to glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And if you really want to see Jesus and his glory, look to the cross. Go to the cross. Look to the cross. Study the cross. You don't need this special mystical vision also to just look to the cross. And as God opens your eyes to the glory of Christ and and him crucified, it's not easy, but it's, it's essential for us to do. We need to ponder that. And you know what it does for us, guys? It humbles us. It truly, truly humbles us. It will stir our hearts to love and worship our Savior as we see what he did for our salvation, as he gave himself when we were sinful rebels. And even when we still blow it every day, It also gives you compassion for the lost when you look to the cross. And seeing Jesus' glory in the cross will transform us so that we see him through our life. First John 3, 2 tells us of the ultimate goal of seeing Jesus. First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Can't wait. I can't wait. Come, Lord Jesus. Look at Jesus' response to Andrew and Philip. Verse 23. But Jesus answered them and saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus is referring to the cross. The word glorified, here in verse 23, it refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which was going to make evident to all that he was God incarnate. He was all that he claimed to be. And when he says the hour has come, it's referring to an appointed time. The time has now come, or now is the occasion for, is what that means. Someone else explained it this way. He said, Jesus said, in effect, these Greeks cannot see me. There is only one way by which they may see me, know me, apprehend me. And that is through the hour that has now come. And that is through the way of the cross. Up until this point in the gospel of John, the hour was still in the future. Jesus' hour or time had not yet come. In chapter 2, verse 4, when his mother came to him at the wedding in Cana and told him that they had run out of wine, he replied, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John 7, 8, when his brothers who were not yet believing in him recommended that he go to the Feast of Tabernacles and make himself known, Jesus replied, my time has not yet fully come. Later at that same feast in John 7, when the Jews tried to capture him, they were unable to lay a hand on him, it says, because his hour had not yet come. But now here, chapter 12, verse 23, in his response to the request uh, of the Greeks wanting to see him, Jesus announces, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I like the way uh, this commentator, Leon Morris, put it. He described uh, Jesus as the Son of Man. He said, it had overtones of his deity, but undertones of of his humanity. It had overtones of his deity, but undertones of his humanity. In John uh, chapter 11 verse 4. When Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He said this sickness is not unto death. But for the glory of God that the son of man may be glorified through it. And this means that to glorify the son. Is equal to glorifying God. Which was Jesus aim in all that he did. And since God's. One of God's main purposes, a vital purpose, is to glorify himself through Jesus, his son. Even our main purpose should be to glorify God in our lives. Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or do or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to bring glory to God in our life, you guys couple of questions. Do you glorify God in your thoughts? Do our attitudes glorify our Savior? Does our speech glorify God? Do our actions glorify God? Do they bring glory to God so that others are drawn to our Savior? Good questions to think about. And since God's aim throughout history is to glorify his son, our aim should be to glorify our Lord and Savior. There's a connection. Our Lord goes on in verse 24. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. See, verse 23 is tied to Jesus' glorification. To do what pleases the Father, to bring glory to the Father. Verse 24 connects to verse 23 in obedience of sacrifice. Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies so that it bears much fruit. I think if you take a, a grain of wheat and you just put it in a coffee cup and just put it on your shelf, it remains alone. It's insignificant. It's powerless. But if you take that little grain of wheat and then you entomb it into the ground, it's going to break out of its its enclosure and it's going to spring into new life. And our Lord is basically giving us a beautiful picture of death, burial, and resurrection here. In verse 24. And the point is that... Resurrected life comes from death. Jesus, by his death, burial and resurrection, he spreads the seed of truth around the world. That's why he came. Through the cross, the gospel is open to all. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus instructs um, on consecration for those who would follow him. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It says, he who loves his life will lose it. The word life in the Greek, that's the, uh, the Greek word, uh, suke. I believe we get our word uh, psychology from that. It refers to the life of the mind, the ego. It speaks of the human personality that thinks, plans, or maps out its direction. And what Jesus is saying is, he who loves his intellect, his emotions, to the point of self-will instead of death to self, will be lost. In other words, the independent must die so, for, so that the followers of Christ submits to his will. We are not to give in to self-interest, but we are to die to self. It is what Mark 8.34 tells us. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Taking up our cross is a daily activity that we are to adopt in our life in the Lord. In Jesus' day, the cross was a device of torture and execution. When Jesus said that a person should take up his cross, they knew what that meant. It meant death. So a man bearing his cross as he was going to be crucified, he gave up all hope in the interest of of this world. He gave up self gratification. The person knew that in a very short time he was going to be leaving this world, he was going to be dead to self. Taking up our cross is not something that we, we attain to in, in a moment of emotional, spiritual ecstasy. But it is a, it's a daily decision that we need to make every day to be aware of. It's living our life under the full lordship of Jesus Christ. There are many who want Jesus as their savior But they don't want Jesus as their Lord. Many disregard his his instructions in his word. And as a result, their moral standards deteriorate. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, you don't stay strong. We have to die to our own desires in order that we would live for Christ. We have to be crucified with him. It's not pleasant to be crucified, but we will never truly live until we are. He who loves his life will lose it, Jesus said there. In the second part of verse 25, Jesus says, And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, having your life in this world is not the way to gain eternal life. Excuse me, hating your life in this world is not a way to gain eternal life, but it is a characteristic of a person who has eternal life. The meaning of hate in this context means that a person considers the objects he hates as, as less desirable. It is having no regard for this world. It is the process for all who have truly tasted Christ for salvation. Think about it. You guys are here tonight. You can be doing all kinds of stuff. You can be at a Dodger game right now. You can be shooting pool right now. You can be rollerblading right now. I mean, there's a bunch of things you can be doing that the world loves to do. And they're not bad things in themselves. But look at what your priority is. That's awesome. That's a picture of that. having no regard for this world it is the process for all who have truly trusted christ for salvation it's a process and the need to hate my life in this world or die to self is never finished in this life we got to deal with it every day it's a daily battle but it's a good battle it's a real good battle but if we are not engaging in this daily battle, then, or, or fighting our own selfishness, fighting our pride, or disliking the things of the world, then we need to ask ourselves, have I truly repented? Have I truly trusted Christ as my Lord and my Savior? Steve Camp, there was a singer a long time ago, he used to have a song that said, uh, Though I love the things in this world, in the end, they just don't satisfy. Judgment begins in the house of God. It was a great song. At the end of verse 25, our Lord gives us the great outcome for those who hate his life in this world. We will preserve our life to live eternally. He says, we'll keep it for eternal life. We will preserve our life for eternity. So we have Jesus' death in verse 24. Verse 24 the death of the one seed producing many seeds and the instructed uh, death to the world for those who follow Jesus as a necessary condition for our our own life. And notice what Jesus says in the first part of verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Now, Now you're talking about an ongoing relationship. When Jesus says, if anyone serves me, He's saying, if any of you want, to, want me to be your master. See, he's not talking about serving in the children's ministry or being an usher, but allowing Jesus to be the master of your life. And then he says, let him follow me. Think about it. Jesus is saying this as he's on his way to the cross. Let him follow me. Speaks of abiding in Jesus for our salvation. Following Jesus speaks of consecration. Perseverance. We we must continue to follow him. And And are we willing to do whatever the Lord calls us to do. As we follow him. And the thing is I can't tell you. What the details are in your situation. But God knows them and you know them. And I know my situation. What he calls me to follow him in. And the question is, will we obey him? Will we serve Jesus by following him? In the second half of verse 26, our Lord gives us two promises. To those who are in uh, in consecrated service to him. Notice the first promise. And where I am, there my servant will be also. This uh, this may be understood in two ways. Number one, it may apply to life now. In other words, if we follow Jesus now, we can be certain that wherever we are, he will be with us. It's obvious because if we're following him, then he's obviously with us. And that's a great promise and that's a great comfort As we have to live on this earth and we go through the trials that we may go through in our lives. There's nothing like knowing that he's with us and we stop and go, wait a minute, my Lord's with me right now. in what I'm doing, where I'm at. Second, the way uh, this may be taken is in reference to the fact that Jesus was going to the cross. And then he was going to be with the father. So it can refer to his soon return to heaven and the promise for those who are consecrated followers here on, on this earth. In other words, we will also be with him in glory. It's the same as what Paul said in 2 Timothy two eleven and 12. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Look at the second promise at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. The word honor, it means that my Father will bestow special marks of honor or favor upon you. The honor that the Father shows is a reward for the believer's faithful service to serving his Son, Jesus Christ. And I can't even imagine what this entails. But I do know that all the honors that we could receive here on this earth pale in comparison to the honor that the Father will give to those who are faithfully serving His Son. No matter what we receive here. I just got an email today, and you know, you get all these trick emails and stuff, you know, they just, they lead you on, but I, all of a sudden I get this email that says, Calvary Chapel Pasadena has been voted best concert venue in Pasadena. And I went, yeah, Right. They're going to honor, they're going to give the church an award for, an honor for the answered outreaches. So I, I'm going to click it and see what it says. And I click it and it's just an ad. You know, you can buy this plaque just for yourself and present it to yourself or something like that. I'm like, you know, they just, it's really silly and, and deceiving. But the honor that we will get from serving, from the father, as we serve the Lord, and it's It's not like we were trying to get this, but man, when you look at this verse and you think about it, man, it's going to be awesome. God is good. Now in verse 27, our Lord anticipates the cross. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus sees his own death standing before him. And as he's approaching the hour when he would become sin on our behalf. And his soul was deeply stirred. It stirred to its core. And you know what, guys? You and I were the cause of his troubled soul. As he's about to be lifted up on the cross to die for our sins. Jesus is revealing his humanity as he feels the death. The shadow of death beginning to surround him. Jesus had been one with the Father from all eternity. He had never experienced a break in perfect fellowship with the the Father. And as a sinless man on this earth, he had that same unbroken fellowship. But when he went to the cross, there was that that insane moment when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, God made himself who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He bore the awful punishment of God's wrath that we deserved. That's why his soul was troubled as he thought about the cross. And the sins that caused our Savior so much anguish and pain, again, if we look at that and we realize it, it should cause us to hate our sins, to fight every day, to put them to death. Too often, we instead, we flirt with our sins and we try to manage them. But you can't flirt or manage with the enemy who wants to destroy you. You can't. It's like trying to flirt or manage with an Islamic terrorist who wants to convert us or kill us. The only way to deal with that type of evil threat is to put it to death. The only way to deal with our sins is to put them to death by the Holy Spirit's power. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice what our Lord prays in the middle of verse 27. He says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Uh, Lenski had an insightful statement about this. He said, In plain human fashion, True man that he was, he looked at the at that possibility, allowed us to hear his thoughts and then at once dismissed them from his mind. He had come to suffer and he was resolved to suffer for this very reason, namely to die for the world. I like that he, you know, he, he, he looked at the possibility and allowed us to hear his thoughts. Then at once he dismissed them. Jesus ends his prayer at the beginning of verse twenty eight by saying, Father, glorify your name. Our Lord is here is he's vocalizing the principle that has ordered his life and ministry, and that is to glorify the Father, God the Father. Jesus said in John seven eighteen, He who speaks from Himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. And at this point, heaven answers Jesus' prayer with a miraculous, audible voice. Look at verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God had been glorified, had glorified his name through Jesus' life and ministry up until this point. And he would be glorified again through Jesus' death and resurrection. The Father is strengthening Jesus' resolve as he heads toward the hour. Verse 29, therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So some in the crowd are standing by and saying it thundered. And I thought that was interesting because there's Old, t- old Testament uh, in the Old Testament, thunder is spoken of as the voice of God. Like in Second Samuel twenty two fourteen, it says, "The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice." And Job thirty seven four says, "After a voice roars, it He thunders with His majestic voice, and He does not restrain, restrain them when His voice is heard." So it's kind of interesting that they thought they heard a thunder. And then there were others in the crowd who said an angel spoke to them. Apparently, these people, they heard in the crowd, they heard a speech. Some thought they heard a thunder. Some, they heard the sound of a speech. So Jesus says to them in verse 30, he says, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. There's three times in Jesus' ministry where the Father spoke out of heaven. One was at his baptism, one was at the Mount of Transfiguration, and one was here. And each time that voice came, he endorsed Jesus and he endorsed his ministry. And you know what? Jesus did not need the audible confirmation that he was in the Father's will. The voice was for the sake of those who heard it. They should have realized that God set his seal of approval on Jesus. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew eleven, fifteen He who has ears, let him hear. Even though the crowd who heard the voice did not understand the fact that a voice from heaven spoke, it should have been enough for anybody with any spiritual sensitivity to be impacted with what had just happened. But it's the same today. It's no different. God speaks clearly through his word. He gives proof that Jesus is the only Savior. But some explain Christianity in completely naturalistic terms. Like those who said it thundered. And then there's others who get kind of mystical, spiritual, spirituality and you know they said an angel spoke people would rather look to angels a lot of times than to Jesus the point is that both sides miss god's testimony of his son in verses 31 to 33 jesus declares the significance of his of his approaching crucifixion verse 31 now that now is the now is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. So our Lord is going, our Lord going to the cross. And as he's going to the cross, it's going to be a time of judgment for the world. When Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave, it signaled a time where all people, Jew and Gentile, could repent and they could embrace him. As their savior. But it also represented judgment on those who rebel against him. Who did not turn to him. The crucifixion was also a time when Satan, the ruler of this world, was cast out. Satan thought that he had triumphed when Jesus went to the cross. But it was actually his defeat. First John 3.18 says, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested... That he might destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus says in verse thirty-two, "And if I am lifted up from this earth," he's referring to the cross. Many take this to refer to his ascension and think that it means that when Jesus was exalted in his risen power, that he would draw men to himself. But what it actually means here, he's saying, he's saying, "If I am lifted up from this earth on the cross." That's what he's talking about and verse 33 confirms that. This he said signifying by what death he would die. And the result of the cross is that Jesus will draw all people to himself. Without distinction, both Jew and Gentile can give their lives to Jesus. And notice the answer of the people in verse 34. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, the people knew that Jesus' words about being lifted up referred to his death on the cross, and they did not get the idea of a suffering Messiah. How could anyone connect the Son of Man with the cross? They wanted him now. They're probably thinking, Did not Isaiah say of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end? And their expectations for a political Messiah was running high. They wanted one now. The Jews connected the Son of Man with an everlasting kingdom. And here he was, who claimed to be the Son of Man, talking about being lifted up on the cross. And then they thought, who is this Son of Man whose kingdom was to end before it begun? It doesn't add up to our thinking here. So they're questioning our Lord's words. In response, Jesus tells them of the shortness of time left for his ministry. Look at verses 35 and 36. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus doesn't even answer their question, but he lets them know that they had a limited window of opportunity to act on the truth that he had given to them about himself. The truth focused on the fact that they were sinners. They were walking in darkness and they needed to come to Jesus as the light. They needed to turn from their sins and Jesus, he's basically saying, don't miss the light who is standing right in front of you. And the main issue was, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And that's still the main issue today. For those who have not given their lives to Jesus. The end of verse 36 says, These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. It's kind of a great tragedy to have Jesus withdraw from you. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus will now withdraw from public view in order to devote a short time he had before the cross to, to minister to his disciples, those who believed in him. Great passage, you guys. <laughs> Insane passage. There's a lot in there. Um, made me think of a song that Crystal Lewis put out a long time ago. The lyrics say, I never know why you did what you did. You hung on the cross so that I wouldn't be lost. You took my place. Now you're pleading my case. You didn't have to do it, but I'm glad you did. You didn't have to do it, but I'm glad you did. And it made me think how we get to read and take in this incredible truth of what our Lord accomplished for our salvation. What prophets and, have, and kings have longed to see, we get to see. And I pray that we would apply the applications that we see in this passage and as we looked at tonight. I pray that we would be built up in our walk with the Lord in his, by his life and his ministry. I pray that we would fall in love with him more and more every time we uh, look to what he has accomplished for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible word, Lord, for you alone have the words of eternal life. Father, thank you for just the incredible, unexplainable act of love that you did for even while we were yet sinners, as Romans 5 says, you died for our sins. You didn't wait for us to get it together. But Father, you went to the cross so that we can look to you, Lord, and Father, find that refuge, and I just praise you that we can do that here, that we have done that here, Lord. And I pray for any brother or sister that might be here tonight, Lord, that just maybe has walked away from you or needs to get some areas right, Lord, that, Lord, you have spoken. Lord, forgive me for my shortcomings, Lord, and Father, you know I love you, you know I want to walk with you, and Lord, just continue to bring revival in your church, Lord, and Father, uh, use us for your glory, Lord, to our friends, our family, our neighbors. Father, those we come in contact, Lord, as you prompt our hearts daily at a store, the gas station, wherever, that we would step out and honor you and, and be used by you, Lord, and see you work, and you would get the glory. So, Father, go before us now, Lord. We love you and we praise you, for you are our Abba Father. And we all pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.